millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. On DAB Digital Radio and 1089 and 1053 AM, after the lights go out on Talk Sports. I'm Steve Harmison. I represented England in 63 tests and 58 one-day internationals and won the Ashes twice with my country. And I'm Leon McKenzie. I've experienced life as both a Premier League footballer and professional boxer. In this series, we focus on elite athletes and their transition from their sporting careers to civilian life and the struggles which have followed. Both Leon and I have experienced our own issues dealing with day-to-day life since departing the sporting arena. And during this series, we're speaking with several sports personalities who've experienced similar battles following their careers in elite sport. Tonight on TalkSport, we're in conversation with the former Wigan, Manchester United, Olympiacos and Northern Ireland goalkeeper, Roy Carroll. Novakovic off the bench, up against Roy Carroll. Great save by Roy Carroll. In for Dembele, the knockdown, what a save from Roy Carroll. Great save. Real chance, another brilliant save. Roy Carroll is outstanding. During a professional football career stretching over a quarter of a century, Roy Carroll represented several clubs including Wigan Athletic, Manchester United, West Ham, Derby County, Olympiacos and Notts County. Numerous major honours came his way, including Premier League and FA Cup winners' medals during his time at Old Trafford, a Greek Super League title and two Greek Cups with Olympiacos, and the Irish League title on two occasions during the latter years of his career with Linfield. On the international stage, he won 45 caps for Northern Ireland and was a member of the squad which competed at Euro 2016 in France. We'll be joined by Roy in a moment. What are you expecting from tonight's interview, Steve? Honesty. A guy who's played probably double the length of a a decent footballing career, Mm. who had his demons with, obviously, alcohol. That's the the topic of conversation tonight. And mental health issues. Mental health issues, but I think the alcohol will stand out. I'm also looking forward to hearing how he was able to recover and go on to have several successful years playing before he retired and his current life working as a goalkeeping coach. You've also got to remember he played with some of the biggest names, particularly during the four years with Manchester United. So it's going to be fascinating to hear Roy talk about his experiences playing alongside some of these personalities. After the lights go out on Talk Sport. Let's give a big welcome to tonight's guest on After the Lights Go Out here on Talk Sport. It's a very good evening to Mr. Roy Carroll. Good evening, Roy. Hi, guys. 
Right, first off, there's a little bit of boof on about you because of you know, the same age. You're also made of the same stuff. You just recently played in an Irish championship match, which you said was you're going to be your last. How does it feel to be finally finished with playing? I tell you what, talking about Buffon, one of the best keepers in the world, I think he's still playing at a high level in Italy. So for me personally, I came back to play for Balamalad, my first team in Northern Ireland when I was growing up. It was the opportunity to play for them because they had no keepers. I couldn't let them down, they had no keepers. So I decided to play the game and it lasted 35 minutes and I was upset uh, with a pulled hamstring and we lost the game as well. But uh, coming back to play at 45 years old, it was very strange. Had a couple of sessions with them, goalkeeping sessions, a couple of training sessions with them. And feeling good coming up to the game, feeling good mm. playing the game. And I made that one mistake when I would tell my young goalkeepers, make sure you hold on to the ball when a shot comes in. And I decided to parry it and I had to get up for the second shot and try to push off and I pulled my hamstring and that was the end of my uh, Balamallet days. And after the game, I said, that's me finished now playing football. I know what it's like to pull a hamstring or two because I've pulled my hamstring so many times. Yeah, but you're you're an outfield player. I'm a goalkeeper. Yeah, That's but this is, this, is, this is what's interesting, boy, right? Because you're a goalkeeper and you're pulling your hamstring. Do you think that because of the sort of ages that you were getting to, did you notice your body sort of starting to yeah. slow down? Because obviously strikers are more explosive than that, right? As we've... <laughs> You're a lot quicker than goalkeepers. But, uh, no, I, I played uh, in a high level in the Irish League with Linfield till I was uh, 40 years old. And even then, I felt my body, I, I ruptured my ACL. I'd done all the knee the year before, so uh, my body was given up. And uh, I decided to become a goalkeeping coach. Uh, came back to play for Dungannon for three months as well. But when you're 45 years old, you think you can do it at that age. But uh, trust me, it's it's difficult. <laughs> and I do put my hands up. Uh, Buffon's still playing a high level in, in Italy. Fantastic on him, like, to keep doing it. Prior to that, Roy, you've had a nine-month spell out of the game in 2011. You know, when you were at a club, you must have wondered if your career as a professional footballer was over at that sort of point in time. As it's fair to say, was that a tough period of, of your life? Yeah, there was a lot of stuff happening off the pitch for me uh, through them nine months. Not even them nine months, it was building up to them nine months. I had a bad injury, had a back problem, had to get an operation on it. Uh, missed about 10 months of my career playing for West Ham. And uh, things off the field happened, a lot of drinking, uh, depression took over. And it was very difficult, I thought that was the end of me. And I woke up one morning uh, in an apartment in Canary Wharf, where it was renting. And I had a few people there, I didn't even know who was there. And I was drinking quite heavily the night before. And I looked in the mirror and just realised, what am I doing? Something looked back at me and didn't realise who I was. And something just clicked in my head. And, and from then on in, I never touched a drop of drink. And it was about 12 years now, 11 years, 12 years. I've been off the drink and it was the hardest, the darkest times of my life not playing football. Because when you're a young lad, you want to be a professional footballer. And I had that opportunity when I came to England. And... Uh, no one told me anything about when I'm out injured, how can I accept being injured for nine or ten months? All I was brought up was play, train, play, train. And that was taken away from me. It was difficult. I was a bit selfish because there's a lot of other players that never come back to play football. But you don't realise that at the time. So it was very dark days for me, them days. Yeah, Roy, you mentioned in, in 2011, the dark days. You made a debut in, I think, 95 at Hull. And that's probably somebody's full career. Would you say 15, 16 years that, that goes with that? Did you have any plans on what you're going to do after football? Or did you make any plans during that time to think, right, what am I going to do 
after football because it sounds like in obviously 2011 the darkest time you went into rehab you went did you go in under a false yeah. name as well yeah let me let me clear this up it was 2007 when it was really serious mm. i came back in 2011 uh, that's when i got my life back on track so it was over a four year period when i was drinking very very heavy and uh, a lot of depression i had going through thinking of bad things so I went to rehab, yes, I bought myself in a rehab, but that was uh, through my wife and through my agent. It wasn't through me because I thought mm. there was nothing wrong with me, as most people who drinks quite heavily think there's nothing wrong with them. And I went in uh, rehab for six days and just thought, no, I'm getting out of here, this is not for me. I think it was about two years later, that's when I realised, that's when I woke up and knew there was a big problem with me. And I fought it, my wife, I fell out with my wife, moved away from the family home and... Uh, Lucky enough, my wife stood by me when I came back on my hands and knees, begging to come back home. And uh, 2011, moved to Greece, and that's what changed my life around, moving away from the UK, my wife and my kids. Just to touch on the rehab stuff, you said it was two years. Do you think the rehab worked for you, even though you said you didn't feel as though it did at the time? Do you think now, on looking back on it, that <coughs> it did work for you? I look back on it now and say everything what I've went through, yes, every single thing I've done, even the rehab, it did help me. But not at the time, because at the time I left, I didn't think there was anything wrong with me. Six days in rehab, yes, it probably did help me when I look back now. But see, after them uh, six days, I think I was back on the drink after two days. And my head was telling me there was nothing wrong with me. But my family, my wife was telling me every, every weekend, Roy, oh, you need to stop, you need to stop. But I didn't listen to her until it was too late. And uh, lucky enough, I wasn't that far gone like to do something harmful to myself, but I knew something was going to happen by drinking too much and I probably end up not waking up one morning with drinking too much alcohol in my system. You know, you mentioned depression uh, previously, which is uh, something I'm familiar with and I know Steve is as well. Where do you feel like these triggers really started from you? Is it because football was sort of maybe coming to an end or is there other sort of deeper things involved with maybe the triggers as such of, of why, you know, you fell into maybe addiction of, of alcohol? Like I said before, the trigger probably for me looking back now was the injury I had. I had a really bad back injury, I had to get an operation. West Ham would put me on the tr on the pitch with an injection on a Saturday morning. Uh, never trained during the week because my back was that serious, I couldn't train during the week. And I was playing games and couldn't get up on a Sunday morning, couldn't get out of bed on Sunday morning. And then I went to see a specialist myself and he said, you're a very lucky person, Roy. You could have had a problem. I had a shooting nerve pain going down my left leg. You could have that foot drop where you have no feeling in your left foot. You've been dragging your foot. So I think that triggered everything in my life, especially the depression, because for me personally, this is my opinion, when I was going through depression was everything was bad. I was thinking of all the bad things. Like, I'm never going to come back. I'm never going to do this. I'm never going to be a footballer again. Never going to be a goalkeeper. And I'm not going to be able to do this. My kids, my small kids were so young. I was worried about my back and I just started drinking even heavier. Heavy. I always had a drink growing up. I uh, always liked to have a drink, but this was getting out of hand. Like, I started off really bad binge drinking at weekends. Mm. And then I moved, remember moving to Denmark, playing in Denmark, and I would have went training in the morning came back, got four bottles of red wine, go home, lock the doors, close the curtains and just lock myself in the apartment and then come back training the next day. Big smile on my face, everything's brilliant. And yeah. done the same thing over and over and over. So I was in a routine, a very mm. bad routine and I couldn't get out. And I came back home 
I thought I'd get a club back in England. Couldn't get a club for nine months. That trigger was definitely probably the injury, what stopped me from training and playing football, what I always loved. Would you say that during that nine months that you was out, the Rangers... No, I was still at West Ham. You were still at West Ham? I was, I, okay. was, I was still at West Ham when things were seri- really, really serious. Right. Went the Rangers. It was still six months up there and it was still I was drinking heavily as well. My wife stayed in London, moved to Derby County for a year and a half and it was then four years, what was really, really bad. And then when I came home, that's when I had nothing for nine, uh, until August. So I came home in December mm. and then until the following August came, I had nothing, I had no football, had nothing. So I, I fell out with my wife, left the kids and then my wife and I, had, I didn't care about anybody. I was just more worried about where my next drink, drink was coming. Where did you fear your life was going then, Roy? Nowhere, Steve. Nowhere, mate. I had nothing in my head what I was doing. I, I would have went any bars in London, anywhere I would have went to get drink. Didn't care how bad it was. And I was definitely in a bad place. Like, looking back now, uh, I feel ashamed of myself, but I'm a strong person now, and, and that's why I'm talking to you uh, today, and I talk about a lot about mental health and yeah. depression and alcohol. People think, oh, come on out, have a drink, you'll be okay. No, alcohol makes it worse. Roy, we spoke a moment ago about your descent into alcoholism. Tell us how you managed to turn your life around and break with the routine of drinking alcohol. Steve, this was a phone call from a Greek agent. Mm. That's what helped me get away from the uh, from where I was to move the other side of Europe to play in Greece. And my wife and my family was with me. Okay. And that's what helped me. I had my wife and my two kids came out to Greece before I never had my wife up in Glasgow or Derby or Denmark. I was by myself, but I did have my teammates, but they were my teammates at training ground. But afterwards, I was locked myself away. So for me, it was always my wife and that phone call from Greece. I was a very lucky person. I got that opportunity to move away and play football, what I always loved, like I always say, and I always will do. It's mm. in my blood. And uh, the move away and move to Crete, where people didn't know me as much as the people did in the UK, I opened up more in Greece, I spoke to my teammates and... I had teammates there who never drank as well, so I was in good company, and it was a different culture as well. So it sounds like um, the surroundings were really important in terms of your actual surroundings. You got into a, a different country where the culture is a little bit different in terms of the drinking. It sounds like it, it maybe helped a little bit. I think it helped me a lot because I don't know if I would have been strong enough to stay off it if I uh, stayed in the UK. Uh, I'm a very addictive person, but... Uh, when I moved to Greece, it just felt like home. Uh, me and my wife and my kids and moved to this place called Crete, uh, an island uh, in Greece. And the fans loved me out there and the, the people. I was only there for six months and I got the opportunity to go to Olympiagos, which was mm. another story. But I did think that did help me to move away from the culture what I was in. I escaped it. There's a lot of people out there who can't have that opportunity. Mm. It's difficult for a lot of people in, in the UK to just pick up and move. But I do talk a lot about my problems what I had and I still do have problems I don't hide the fact I do still have problems uh, that's why I came back to play for Dungannon because when the pandemic came along my goalkeeping school got closed down everything was closed down apart from the Irish League so mm. I came, I was falling back into a hole again didn't know what to do and me and the wife spoke which we never spoke before I had these problems and we spoke together about things and she said you'd be safe for coming back and playing football again get out twice a week and play on a Saturday Everybody's got different problems and my problem was I, I'm an outside person. I always wanted to play football and I wanted to coach and mm. and when you get that taken away from you, it's very difficult. Yeah, I've, I've said this many times. Um, we sort of lose our identity a little bit and 
you know, I'd certainly lost, lost my identity a little bit after after my football career. I, I mean, I've never had a, an issue with, with drink or drugs or anything like that. But, you know, it falls into the addiction nature. What is really interesting for me is, is why we become even more self-destructive. You said to us just then, you know, you sort of chase to try and find that, you know, to go to a pub or a drink or whatever it is. What is it that's in you that's making you know that it's actually, if I go to this pub, it's going to be a problem for me. But actually, you can't stop from going. It's affecting so much. Is it because you're you're depressed? Is it because you are feeling, you know, alone with, with your thoughts? Um, like you say, you'll do that and then you'll go to the training ground, which I've done many, many days, and just pretend like everything's great in my life. I've always wanted to ask this question. I sometimes can't answer it myself. Like, why do we become even more self-destructive? Depression was the massive thing for me. I wanted mm. to forget about things. Same. I mm. wanted to forget about things and I had to take something. So I went to a pub and take about 10 pints, 15 pints, and then go on somewhere else and move on somewhere else and maybe two or three day binging. Mm. And you forget about it and you wake up the next day and it's a hundred times worse. So my body was getting used to the drink and... That was the problem with me. The body was getting used to the drink and I was relying on the drink to live my life. Once something takes over your body, like alcohol did to me, you just think in your own head you need it to get through the day. And I remember when I was really bad, when I was by myself, I would have had a glass of vodka lying on the bed for me to wake up to drink before I got out to go to work. And that's when things were getting really bad. But I didn't even have work. I had nothing for nine months and that's when that started happening. So it was... 24-7 24-7 I was probably drinking that's why in them nine months I said uh, said early on I could end up dying because my organs would have given up or whatever but mm. something did stop me from going on when I woke up that day in Canary Wharf in the apartment something did tell me to stop it and it just clicked and that was my that was my last day I stopped drinking but going back to the rehab I remember the day when I was in rehab we were allowed to go out for an hour with people looking after us and I remember people was walking the other side of the road and I was thinking, why are you going to cross the road? These two or three people couldn't walk past the bar because it scared them to go near the bar because the road went in. And two years later, I was uh, that was me. I was going in the bar and I was struggling to stay out of the bar. And yes, that's what's stuck in my mind now, what's been happening in my life. I go in the bars now. I go with my, my wife and my family and my friends mm. and I don't even care about the drink the first three or four years it was very very difficult for me coming back to back home to the uk mm. uh, because it's it's the culture it's your routine isn't it when you're in a dressing room and you're larger than life character i, I used to get that you know I, I drank a bit and it was like oh is a good you know a good lad good drinker and you know, we'll go out and you sometimes because you are pigeonholed into this larger than life good lad character always up for a crack always up for a, a good night out you sometimes feel as though, well, I have to stand up to that, even though I don't fancy it. And I found I got myself into that at the back end of my career. It was like, whenever the young lads wanted to go out, oh, homie, you'll be always, always up for a good night out and a good drink and a good crack. And sometimes you couldn't be bothered, but you felt I felt as though sometimes I had to keep up with my the sort of image of that. Yeah. Steve, I hit the nail on the head there. I remember uh, the boys used to ring me up. I was always the first out and the last leave. Remember the times when I wasn't going to go out and they ring me up or text me and I would have had an argument with the wife to get out of the house. It is embarrassing talking about it, like, but it's not the life what you see superstars do in the World Cup and all that. They do go through problems in their life, but 
when I was growing up as a footballer, people said, why do you not come out and talk about it? It was my job. Mm. It was my income. I had to feed the family. And I didn't want to tell anybody what I was going through. And uh, being the man of the house, and you should be tough. Sometimes footballers need a bit of help behind the scenes as well, but you don't want to come speak to the manager or the coaches or anybody at the club because they might let your contract run out and you're not getting a new contract. I remember 2004-05, I go to South Africa, the number one ranked bowler in the world. And for three weeks leading into the first test match, every night I was crying my eyes out. No idea what was wrong with me. Obviously, I diagnosed with depression. Mm. And I'm like, I can't tell the coach. I can't tell my teammates. I had one person in that dressing room, Andrew Flintoff, who I was close to. He knew what was going on. Physio had an idea what was going on. But I had no idea what was wrong with me, really. And I'm like, if I come out and tell the coach, or if I come out and tell my teammates, I have got depression. I won't play in the first test. And I'll probably be on the next plane home. And I will end my career even ranked at number one bowler in the world but depression at that time the stigma that was with that it wasn't classed as an illness it was classed as a weakness and if I walk in to the coach and say I have got depression I would never play cricket again yeah it's, yeah. it's difficult you look how many people come out and speak about it after they retired from football or any sports uh, they come out and talk about it but that's been happening for a long long time mm. uh, I was at Nottingham Forest before the pandemic, just seeing a few players and the coach invited me over. They're getting a lot of help now, but deep, deep down, these young players, these senior players still need help. Even if they can bring somebody up and speak to them, you know what I mean? We're doing a lot of work about mental health in Northern Ireland, but there's still a lot of problems, especially with the pandemic as well. People don't want to talk about the problems. They're too scared, and some people, it's too late for them to talk about it 10, 15 years down the line, and it does scare me a lot. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. After the lights go out, Leon McKenzie and Steve Harmison in conversation with Roy Carroll on Talk Sport. So, Roy, your last game for Manchester United was in an FA Cup. 2005. 2005. Arsenal. Arsenal. Can you tell us a little bit about that game, please? Uh, we lost in penalties. Didn't save one penalty. We lost, left five goals in. But uh, during the game, we should have won in the first, in the 90 minutes. We were all over Arsenal at the time. And I remember coming off and uh, for the extra time. So Alex came up to me and said, I'm going to put Tim Howard in for the penalty shootout, so we're going to pull you off. 
just before the full time and extra time. So that was okay, no problem. Tim Howard's a good shot stopper, very good at penalty saves. And it was nearly over, the game was nearly over. I kept looking over, seeing when I'm going to come off. The referee blew the whistle, walked over. So Alex turned around and said, oh, geez, I forgot to take you off. <laughs> Not in them words. There was a few other words in there as well. Don't yeah, want to yeah, say yeah. it online, but there was a few other words. So I had to go on goals for the penalty shootout. And the first thing he said to me, make sure you stand up for the penalties because they kicked them down the middle of the, middle of the goals. Mm. So that was all right. Um, went in, dived to my right, dived to my left, wherever sides they were. Mm. And only one player went down the middle and... We lost the game, so Alex after the game, I told you to stand up, I told you to stand up. But uh, I said, Patrick Ferreira's last penalty was down my right side and nearly saved it. And uh, horrible game to lose, especially when you're all over them in the first uh, in the 90 minutes. And uh, they finished uh, your career at Manchester United then. Uh, it was a very difficult one to take. With, you, with that being your last game, do you feel that if you had stayed at Manchester United, your path would have been different? It could be. It could and the reason I yeah, reason no. I ask that question is just because, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson is, you know, a very respected manager in terms of how he operates. There are some real big stars in Manchester United. And maybe just the surroundings and uh, maybe from a protection point of view might have been a little bit different. That's why I asked the question for you. No, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, I, I could have. Uh, you never know in life, do you? Uh, mm. My decision was... So Alex offered me a new contract in January that year. 2005? Uh, uh, 2005, offered yeah. me a four-year contract. But he, uh, he's so truthful. Uh, he's a manager, which I respect. He said, we're going to bring a top-class goalkeeper in. He said, it's up to you. You might not play as many games. January this was, and he played me for the rest of the season. Not too many managers out there would keep me on, uh, on the pitch if I mm. said no. But I went away, he told me to have a couple of days to think about it. Went away, spoke to a few senior players. I remember clearly, I'm not saying any names, but uh, I spoke to one senior player and I said to him, uh, I've offered me a four-year contract. I'm not going to play, play many games. And the first thing he said, what did you want to do when you were a young boy? And I said, I want to play football. And he says, Roy, you've answered your own question. Mm. It's up to you what you want to do. You can stay or you can go and play football somewhere else. And I was quite lucky. I had West Ham who was inter interested in me at the time. So that decision to move on, to go to West Ham, that's what made me move on. Uh, I wanted to play football. If I stayed at Manchester United, who knows what would have happened. It was a good, stable club. I enjoyed my time there, four years playing for Manchester United. But the three years before that last year I was there, I didn't really play many games. I played most of the games in my last year at United. And uh, for me, I'd rather look back and say I've played 700, 800 games in my career instead of sitting on the bench or sitting in the stands. I'm winning trophies sitting in the stands. It's not me. I want to play football. Yeah, and Roy, talk us about your time at Manchester United because you won the Premier League in 2002-03, FA Cup in 2003-04, um, and you played a fair amount of games in that time. There were some unbelievable players. I know you've, you've mentioned Sir Alex, an unbelievable ma manager and a man, but there were some fantastic players in that dressing room and you know, the likes of Roy Keane. What was it like to play with? with the likes of, of Roy Keane because I can imagine that have been difficult conversations in Northern Irishman and a Republic of Irishman. <laughs> it wasn't too bad. Uh, it wasn't too bad, but it was it was nervous. Uh, I've been playing six years in the lower leagues. I played for Hull City, moved over in 95, played for Hull City. Then I moved to Wigan in, 90, in 97 and uh, in League Two. And moving from Wigan to Manchester United... It's a big, big step for me. I was 23 years old and 
I remember clearly when I was waiting, I signed a contract uh, three weeks till pre-season, signed the contract and for the three weeks I was waiting, I couldn't even sleep. I was very nervous, didn't know what to say to these superstars going into uh, training one morning. So what I did, uh, first day back, I thought it would be very early, so I got there for nine o'clock in the morning. But everybody else was in. Everybody else was in. Really? All the, yeah, these players, they were so dedicated to, to be playing at the top level. The first person came over to me was David Beckham, and I just sat there with my mouth wide open. He says, hi, I'm David Beckham. And I just looked at him. I didn't even say my name. I was just thinking, I know who you are. And I was just so nervous. But see, at the end of the session, I went home and I just thought, said to my wife, that's unbelievable. I just felt I'd been there for years and years. Did he been... actually put Beckham on the end of David? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> did. did he really? He did. This guy's a superstar. He wasn't a bad-looking lad at the time, was he? No, <laughs> what, what a guy. What a, everybody was brilliant to me. And it just made me feel so welcome. And I just thought I was there for years and years. And that's what made me feel so welcome. And it just, it, it just bedded myself really well at Manchester United. But uh, the, the other one was... Um, when you're training, the winning mentality that's just playing the 7 seven v 7 like if you were in the Roy Keane's side. Right, this is what I was going to just come to. Were you? Roy Keane. This is what I was going to come to because this, this man fascinates me, but I've seen it because obviously I've played against him. Yeah. But talk to us about the training ground situations because I know there's some winning mentalities in there. You can't be giving the ball away and things like that. So Tell us a little bit about what goes on in training, especially with someone like Roy Keane on your side. Did you get on with him? Yeah, what are the stories? <laughs> I learned a lot from Roy. I did learn a lot from Roy. I learned a lot from all the players and the coaching staff, not just winning games. Uh, the winning mentality you had to have when you walk through them doors at Carrington into the training ground. When you lose, you know you've lost if you're in Roy's team. And, uh, <laughs> Elaborate. Yeah. You, you can't leave it there. No. Elaborate. And uh, it, no, I've seen it many times. Like So I was always trying to get in somebody else's team. But no, uh, this, everybody, <laughs> even the boxes, we had. We used to do a warm-up in the boxes. Just thought you'd pass the ball around, keep it off the two in the middle. Oh, my word. The two players in the middle of the box. It was flying, tackles flying everywhere. Players are just going in left, right and centre. But uh, the ball was passing really quickly. That woke my eyes up and said, this is what top football is all about. Levels. And I played in the lowest leagues in England for six years. And when I went to Manchester United, I thought that was it, finished. 12 o'clock, half 12, finished off the training ground. Players are staying out afterwards doing their own work on the pitch. I've never seen that before. I might have seen it from a few young players in the, at Hull City and Wigan, but not six, seven, ten, eleven players. Like David Beckham wanted me to stay behind, take free kicks. I thought when he left, I thought, oh, brilliant, bit of rest. And Ronaldo came in and he wanted to do the same thing. Mm. It was it was amazing. It opened my eyes how hard you had to train to succeed, to win games on a match day. And uh, anybody who played with me after Manchester United, they know that. Because for me, I hate losing. I thought I hated losing until I went to Manchester United. It was even worse when you did lose there. Mm. Because everybody wanted to beat us. You left Manchester United and you decided not to take up that four-year contract and yeah, Leon posed a question a second ago about whether that was the, the right or the wrong decision. But you went to West Ham and we've talked about the troubles that you had. West Ham was a was an interesting choice. Things weren't going as well for you there. Um, just talk to us about the period during that time and the difference between being at Manchester United and being at West Ham. Being at West Ham, uh, I know I had went through a bad time uh, after six months because of my back, but uh, see, coming up to that period, I was playing week in, week out. West Ham got promoted. We did quite well that first season we were there. Uh, I was there. 
the fans were brilliant. The stadium up in Park, what a stadium that was to walk out in. Uh, mm. It was unbelievable fans there. I really enjoyed it. my time at West Ham until the serious stuff happened to me off the pitch. I have nothing against the West Ham uh, football or the supporters because I loved it uh, until the stuff off the field happened, happened to me with the depression and the injury. But that's football. I was saying to someone there the other day, I said, things happen for a reason. And that reason happened to me and it made me the person I am today. And if that never happened, I don't know what it would be like today. You know what I mean? It's, it's things uh, out of my control. Like uh, when I get that injury, back injury, there's nothing I can do. But mm. I could have been a lot mentally stronger if I understood what was going to happen to me. What I'm doing now in Northern Ireland, I'm, I'm helping young players trying to become professional footballers. But I do tell them to try and get something else outside football to focus on if you do get injured. Mm. Because that's that was my problem. I never focused on anything else apart from football. Yeah, same same with me. And I was like very young at Crystal Palace when I'd done my first major career threatening injury to my knee, which I ended up having sort of three operations on as as career went on. But that injury changed everything for me from from a psychological point of view. And now we can't control what's happening with our body. Now we can't actually do what we love. It puts us into some real vulnerable positions and I think back when we were sort of playing properly uh, or competing shall I say it just it just wasn't a known thing to really be talking about you know but, we just hmm. couldn't have those conversations and that's why it's so yeah. important like to have you on the show now I I, um, I just uh, that that's the biggest thing I've went through I think a lot of people out there probably listen to this and say oh it's just an injury it's not it's just an no. injury but it's not uh, every sports person goes through it like uh, you'd be lucky to go through your career with, without an injury mm. I had a few injuries broken fingers I was out for a few weeks uh, maybe a month but being out for so long nine ten months it did take a lot out of me mm. but that's what I'm saying like it's like can I bring things into the uh, football and or sports in Northern Ireland to give young kids the opportunity to, to deal with this problem if it does arise in your career mm. because you could be the best sports person in the world but if you get that bad injury you could go down a dark road like I did for me it's like always something good to do outside football and I remember when I retired and a lot of people do talk like why do you not go back to university do things in college or do things I said no all I wanted to do focus was playing football mm -hmm. Steve said it early on about me uh, about did you what did you focus uh, were you when were you focusing to become a coach I didn't focus until I finished football because all I wanted to do was focus on playing football yeah if, if something else put me off yeah and I have a bad game I would have kicked myself, you know what I mean? Mm. So I always focused. My job was to try and keep clean sheets, mm. win the game for your team. And that's all I was focusing on. Uh, I never focused on anything else. But <laughs> football now and sports, I don't know what it's like, Stephen, uh, in cricket, but a lot of people are doing different things now. Their managers, coaching badges or uh, all different physios and stuff like that there. But mm. my, when I was growing up, no. All we wanted to do Same. was being a footballer. There's two things that I want to ask Roy, and that is, you left West Ham after a time of trouble. You had a, a period where you, you really struggled. The interesting bit for me was, I read was you saying, my wife found out I was off the drink. She invited me back into the house to talk. How important was that conversation? And then taking hmm. the conversation from the Greek agent and then moving everybody back. Did you feel as though you got your life back? Yeah, that that's the period when I went back to my wife at hands and knees and first of all she didn't let me come back that's what it was I used to live a place around uh, Essex everybody knew everybody 
and I was off the drink for nearly over a month. I think it was over a month, and uh, she heard, and she brought me back, and that's how we got back together again. And uh, the phone call, it was weird when I got back to the wife. Phone call, it was probably ten days later from the Greek agent, and I just asked my wife, "Do you fancy going out to Greece to have? Because they were invite me out for a week to have a have a look around and stuff." So we end up going to Greece together as a family, and. We just decided, no, we're not coming back to the UK. We're going to stay in Greece. And I said, right, we're signing contract here. My wife and my kids went back. My wife sorted everything because I was still in a bad way at that stage. Mm. I was struggling. And I remember when um, my wife and kids went back and I was sitting around the pool at the hotel thinking, I'll be all right now. I'm okay. I'll be in a good place. And I said, no, Roy, you're not drinking. not taking it anymore. I'm off it. And that was it. Roy, looking at life today, very much involved in coaching work for the Irish FA as their goalkeeping development coach. And you've been involved recently with the Northern Ireland national team. Tell us more about that. Yeah, Jared Little was the under-17 and under-19 manager. And he asked me to come in and do the goalkeepers about two years ago. And I jumped at the chance to come in and do it. Steve Harper was the goalkeeping coach in the first team. And he ended up moving back to Newcastle. To the, the academy, I think he's doing the director of the academy mm. up in Newcastle. What a great guy! Uh, I spoke to him a few times, and it was great that the great to get his experience as a goalkeeping coach and end up becoming the, the first team goalkeeping coach when he left. And uh, it was an honour being a goalkeeping coach of Northern Ireland after being involved in, in the playing career so many years. And then they gave me a full time role as a two year contract to, to become the, the goalkeeping development coach of goalkeepers. It's a great honour for me again to work the whole youth set up up to the up to the first team and develop these young keepers to try and get them in the first team. Well, you was a goalkeeping coach at Nottingham Forest for one day. I was at Nottingham Forest. Uh, I know the president. I know the people there because of Olympiagos, mm. and they asked me to come in to for the end of the season. Uh, so that was around lockdown. So it was. How, it, how did that affect you, the lockdown? Because it affected a lot no, of that, people. That, that's, that's the thing. Uh, when I went to Forest, we didn't know what was going on. Uh, we had one training session. It was brilliant to be in a Forest. The training pitch was excellent. Everything was lovely. I was loving every minute of it. Uh, and then everything got closed down. Went back home and my goalkeeping schools got closed down again as well. So everything was closed down. It was difficult at that time. But... Uh, it was good experience, and when I was at Forest, I learned a lot outside the game as well. Because there was a there was a lady there who looks after the academy players. I remember being in Hull City when I was told uh, my mates used to go in uh, at the end of the season, your teammates and players coming out crying, and all the players coming. Yes, I've got two year contract professional. Yeah. Now this day this day and age, players are told and they have help to speak out about what where they're going to go forward after this. But back in my day, as a YTS, back in the day, it was you got two ways through the front door, back in the changing rooms, mm. and nobody else come near you. And yeah, that, it was definitely it. it was hard. But yeah, it was it was some experience being there for one day. I wish I was there a bit longer, but the pandemic came along. Mm. Uh, good football club, great academy, really good setup. The academy people, a lot of good players come out of the academy system over there as well. How did the pandemic affect you personally? Yeah, it affected me big time, and that's why I came back to play for Dungannon played for Dungannon for three months to get out of the house and training twice a week and playing on a Saturday. Northern Ireland, the premiership up over there, mm. the part-time teams only train Tuesdays and Thursdays and play on Saturday. So it affected me uh, quite a bit because, like I said, I'm an outside person. I yeah. love coaching, mm. I love playing football and I like being outside. And uh, when you get locked up 23 hours a day... You can feel trapped. Uh, it's not yeah. nice, you feel trapped. 
Yeah. And Roy, what is what you like now? We've talked about the alcohol. I'm assuming that's gone. Talk about depression. Where you at with that? You've got your own coaching school, RC1. How's that going after lockdown? Yeah, I'm still a madman, like, but uh, <laughs> apart from that, there, it's it's going great at the moment. But each day you take each day as it comes because, uh, you know, one day uh, if something's going to happen, you have to prepare for that. And uh, I do still fight the depression, uh, not as much as I did do, but I can handle it a lot more. I know what my body can do. I know what I'm doing in my own head. I think that's because the alcohol, I've been off the alcohol for that long and I'm very clear. I've got a great focus what I'm going to do in the future. And the coaching school? Yes, my own goalkeeping school is going really well. I've got uh, 25 young goalkeepers. We do four-week blocks every Sunday. We have one Sunday off. We do that eight times during the year. And a lot of young young keepers I lost quite a a few as well because of uh, the pandemic. The poor kids never came back out. It caused a lot of problems, this lockdown. I'm not saying if it was right or wrong, but uh, it did cause a lot of problems to young people. Uh, My daughter struggled with it as well. Yeah. It's not easy for anybody, but the, the, everything's going well for me. The coaching, uh, my own goalkeeping school is doing excellent. I really enjoy it and love seeing the kids smiling and enjoying life on the training pitch. Roy, we've spoken about how moving to Greece was a big turning point in your life. But let's look at the time on the pitch, which was a big success for you at Olympiakos. First of all, it was an offy. Off. In Crete. Yeah. Talk me through it. Offy. Offy and Olympiakos. Then Olympiakos. But the Olympiakos debut was special. Yeah, it was it was very cold. <laughs> it was very cold. It, it was very cold. It was minus thirteen in Moscow. Really? Yeah. And the game was changed from night to during the day. That was during the day as well. Mm. But talk to me about the penalty save. Yeah, because that's a wonderful way to to start, right? Oh, brilliant, brilliant way to start playing for Olympiagos. Uh, wife and kids there. The wife and kids there. Not in Not Moscow, there. it was too no, cold. They were in too, Athens. Too they, okay. were, they were in Athens when it was 24 degrees. That's a bit better. That makes more sense. Yeah. There's so, things you will do if you want your husband, but not that, not that. <laughs> she might not have come uh, if you would have said no. that first. No, so, so you can see it clearly there. The player got a ball played through. It was The keeper was coming out and uh, the player just got there before the keeper and he took him down. And it was that cold, I had doctor's gloves underneath my match gloves because it was that cold, couldn't feel my fingers. I think I had two or three tracksuit buttons on, I had about four jackets on and uh, three jumpers. When the referee said, put that red card up, it took me seven minutes to get all my kit off to go on the pitch. And I remember standing there clearly, and there's a video of me standing there, I was shaking. Remember Bruce Goblin, the European Cup, yeah. when he was yeah. shaking his legs? Yeah, yeah. Someone thought I was doing the Bruce Goblin thing. No, it wasn't. It was just because it was that cold. And lucky enough, I fell over the right way, dived to my left and fell over and saved it. Basically, the the fans, uh, it's just fantastic to me. They call me a legend playing for Olympiagos. The second game I played in the Europa uh, League, uh, it was 1-0. We ended up winning at 1-0, but I played the last 25 minutes with another pulled hamstring. Mm. And we had a young keeper in goal uh, on the bench. And uh, I looked over, the the manager said, you stay on the pitch and... Mm. I played on for 25 minutes and uh, I did really well. I made a few saves with one leg. Yeah. And then after that game, the fans just uh, took me. I went back over there in 2014 when I played for Northern Ireland. Really? Yeah, the fans were still turning up to watch, uh, say hello to me. And What's the difference in terms of, like, you see, like, the fans here to then you go to somewhere like that? What's the atmosphere like? I remember when uh, we played Pandagos, uh, my first derby at Olympiagos was away at Pandagos and... There was no away fans allowed. 
was all Pentagos fans, it was 60,000 Pentagos fans, and the noise was unbelievable, crazy. They had a running track around it. Mm. The goalkeeping coach said to me, keep your head down, like, keep your head down. And I said, what's he on about? I walked on the pitch, and I, the fans were way back there. Next minute, it was really? flying everywhere. The fireworks wow. flying past us and everything. So that's what he meant. Oh, that's what he meant. <laughs> Keep your head down. So every time you're trying to catch a ball, you're trying to flip and dodge the fireworks coming yeah. on the pitch as well. But I did really enjoy it. Um, I remember going back there with the Northern Ireland team when we played Greece. Mm. People still coming up to me, speaking to me, and it's love it's, it's, it's to see. Uh, it's great to see. I call Amazing. it my second home. The people did look after me out there, and I really enjoyed every minute of it. And of course, the weather was nice as well. Did you feel as though you were comfortable going? Because you you didn't start at Olympiakos. You got to move from a off, smaller uh, off a off year. going yeah. to Olympiakos. Was that like going? You know, Wigan to Manchester United, if you want to talk about no, English terms. I'm not this back in uh, off like because the fans were brilliant to me out there for six months. I worked hard for them. The Greek people will appreciate what you do if you give 100% on the pitch and off the pitch. And uh, even off, he could see that, yes. But going to Olympiagos, that was the next level. I started playing uh, back in the Champions League again and uh, sometimes in the Europa League. And uh, I won a, few, uh, won a Greek league over there and I won two Greek Cups as well. So... Mm. It was a big step up for Olympiagos and I always said it was a mini man U, uh, outside the UK. Great facilities. The owner was really good to me mm. and uh, it was a fantastic setup and a lot of good people in both clubs. So what's the future hold for Roy? Future for me is to work as hard as I can to get the next Northern Ireland keeper to play for the country. That's I, your ambition? That's my ambition. A young keeper coming up and co- growing up in Northern Ireland the player for, it's like myself when I was growing up Pat Jennings what a legend and that's my ambition is to get the next goalkeeper to play for Northern Ireland mm. first team wow and you're doing are you doing something to do with a team um, in Ireland uh, with no, mental health uh, um, I did do uh, it was called FC Mindwell me, right, yeah. me and Keith Gillespie uh, great guy me and him joined this club that's just started opening this club in Northern, Northern Ireland and it was all for men who had uh, problems off the pitch ex-players no matter what play, league they played in mm. really enjoyed it with them good fun spoke about my problems to them they thought geez I, there was nothing wrong with me spoke to them they, they listened to me on my broadcast and stuff like that there and they said well I can't believe the life you had and I said I know sometimes I wake up and just pinch myself and I can't believe it myself but uh, people just want to hear people like myself who's played in a high level open up what I've went through and hopefully can help because Northern Ireland is a very serious place when I went back. There was I've a lot of, lot of suicides and I've heard, yeah. it, it scared me. And uh, I hope I can help a small small bit of the, the help them people to, I'm, I'm to sure go over it. I'm and, sure um, you will. And Roy, <coughs> you know, talk to us about Northern Ireland. You mentioned Dizzy there. I know Keith Gillespie mm. you know, very well. We go to Portugal you know, a couple of times a year playing golf and he's a great fella. I, I love him to bits. He's, he's just so infectious as a, as a character and as a person representing Northern Ireland 45 times. What was it like to represent your country like that? I was involved in the Northern Ireland set-up uh, when I was 18, but I never played until I was 19 in Thailand. And I only played half a game. And see, I walked off that pitch saying, if that was my last game, I've, I loved every minute of it. And I was lucky enough to get 45 caps. I missed five years of the, um, my international football career because of the problems off the field. And uh, to get 45 caps and... I'd done a podcast quite a while ago and I was, sit- was saying when I was sitting on the bench and I, I was crying on the bench uh, when we lost against Wales. It was a big thing 
after what I've went through and what I've brought my family through. It was a hard, hard life that I've went through for my wife and myself and my kids and my family. And I was crying on the bench, not just for the football, it was what, what we've went through. Mm-hmm. And I never thought I'd be sitting in the major tournament in France in 2016 after mm-hmm. what I've, uh, what my body went through and stuff. It's a story that I love to get out and I want people to understand life isn't easy at the top. And there's a lot of players that do drop very quickly. And I did drop and I got back on the horse and jumped back up and mm-hmm. I, I played in the highest level again. Michael O'Neill called me back in in 2000 and 2012, I think it was. And I, I got most of my caps probably then in them four years with mm. Michael O'Neill than, than I did before. And in 2016, was that the highlight? Going to France. You played five out of ten qualifying games. You got to France and uh, the Euros were... It was a major tournament. I know you might laugh at me here, but my major thing uh, was playing my first game for Northern Ireland. I know mm. it was a new friendly, but that was massive for me at 19 years old to play for your country. Yes, the 2016 was uh, a great highlight for me, but my biggest highlight playing for Northern Ireland was making that debut. For me, to to listen to your openness and, and what you want to give back in terms of what you've experienced, I totally understand. As I do a little bit of mentoring now for Crystal Palace under-18s, mentoring sounds like you're kind of in that direction, but would you ever go into management? I am changing. I've calmed down a lot, actually, since I've been playing. Like, uh, I think football has changed so much. It's changed so much. Uh, I remember back in the day when I was playing through at Wigan, even Sir Alex Ferguson shouting at you and stuff like that there, pull your sleeves up and get on with it. Uh, this day and age, nothing against the players. It's just the way we are in life. Yeah. So for me, yes, I'd probably love to become a manager, but not. Uh, I have a lot to do after learn the game a lot more. Would that learn. be back home, do you think? Or, or maybe nah, here? Anywhere, anywhere, you know what I mean? I, I've been all, I've, I've been everywhere. I've, I've played in Denmark, I've played in Greece, played in all the leagues in England. I loved every place I've been to. Uh, so you've heard it here first. It's been fascinating to hear your story. I speak on behalf of Leon here when we, we say a massive thank you for not only your honesty, um, your openness to tell the world for me what a great bloke Roy Carroll is thank, thank you, you so much for it appreciate it cheers guys thank you thanks for having me on hi I'm Daniel founder of Pretty Litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy so I created Pretty Litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.